0: So is it Easter weekend for, you? I mean, obviously it's Easter weekend for you guys. I don't think that's a non-thing, but we have, here in Australia, we have like a four-day four-day holiday weekend. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have that? I know they don't have that in America.
1: No, they don't. And Canada shares it as well. So Monday would be a holiday, but uh, the Dutch, I I don't really understand um, where Easter is in their calendar and they're a lot more secular than North America is, so they don't really respect the holiday but sure. some businesses are closed some are not it's really weird i i have no idea what's going on right now <laughs> i think australia's
2: pretty secular as well but we'll take any opportunity for a public holiday oh yeah i, I think any, that's yeah. at all.
1: because
0: like we're, we're probably more secular than than the us is strictly speaking and uh but yeah we they don't have a 4 day weekend i think they possibly have the monday off that would be the work ethic, mm. and we have we have four days, so we take Friday off as well. Yeah, and then we've got Anzac Day next Friday, <laughs> so another this, next week. Monday's a public holiday
2: for Easter, and Friday's a public holiday for um the Australian New
0: Zealand Alliance. Oh, nice! America, Australia? No, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it's Anzac a, Day. It's a essentially a, a military holiday. Oh, yeah. hmm. kind of like cool. I don't know. I don't know. I should we should really know this. Should know our history. I don't really know anything about <laughs> history. I'm not a history. I think it's guy. to
2: celebrate to celebrate, commemorate the alliance between Australia and New Zealand that started in World War
0: One. I, I think. I think that's the exact day. Something something about Gallipoli, I know that much. Yeah, that was in yeah, Turkey. Okay. It was not good. Anyway, I'm sorry, I this is completely <laughs> A off topic and B nothing that interesting. But you mentioned Canada. Are you uh, Canadian?
1: Yes, yeah. I'm Canadian, but I'm living in Amsterdam at the moment.
2: Yeah, I I've gathered you'd moved to Amsterdam. I don't know. Have we started the show? Because I kind of want to ask
0: about Amsterdam we, on the show. We kind of have, but haven't. We haven't I haven't done the intro yet, but it's you know the intro is for us is a variable. Why don't I do that now and we'll just sure. get straight into then it. Then I'm gonna ask about Amsterdam. So hi, this is Mobile Couch and uh this show is typically hosted by Jake McMullen. Hello. And Ben Trangrove, who is not here. I was going to impersonate him. Oh, were you? Yeah. Okay, do you Ben voice. Ben Trangrove. Hello. <laughs> and myself, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly. This week on episode number 30, we have Ash Furrow. Hello. Hi, Ash.
1: How are you? I'm,
2: I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. Thank you. We, we could actually just make this a permanent thing. We swap, swap Ben
1: for Ash. I could, could we? yeah, I, don't know. I, ben, I think I can have another like podcast ben. on my plate, yeah.
2: Because you've got two at the moment, don't you? Is it, am I keeping up with you? You're uh, the, the person behind Notification Center and Springboard, is that right? That's right, yeah. I
1: haven't missed any, there's not a third. No, well, there sort of is, but uh, it's sort of gone defunct since I moved from uh, Toronto because that's where I recorded it with some friends. So, you know, I've only got two at the moment, but.
0: Yeah, I always wondered whether or not I would like conti- be able to continue doing this show if like if one of us moved away. It'd be I think it'd be difficult, try, especially trying to do it internationally. Mm-hmm. Although there are shows that do it, I suppose. Yeah. So you're you're also an author. You've done. You've written. Um, you've written. What, a book, two books, multiple books? I don't know. I don't actually know. <laughs> <laughs> Wr- written at least
2: one, right? So I should should uh, say the reason we asked you on the show, thank you for coming on, um, is because I've been trying to learn uh, about uh, reactive cocoa and functional reactive programming more generally. And so as part of my mission to learn about it, I bought your book, Functional Reactive Programming, on iOS, uh, which I think is fantastic. Thank you. Um, and it explained a great deal to me, but I still have loads of questions. So I thought... What better way of um, satisfying my curiosity than actually getting you on the show to ask you about the questions?
0: Yeah, so for all those listeners who've been waiting for us to actually tackle reactive cocoa, this is the special thing that we've been lining up for a while now. Before we get into that, though, can
2: I can I ask a little bit about you? Um, sure. Do you, so I I believe you were working at Tihan, and we were debating the pronunciation. Is it Tihan and lack, Lacks.
1: lax? Mm -hmm. Um,
2: And I don't know anything about them at all, except did they do like a Photoshop document that was like a template for iOS devices? Yeah, exactly. The same organization that I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. But obviously there was coding involved as well. So is that a a sort of uh, design and development
1: shop? Yep, that's exactly right.
2: And I think uh, I I was reading on your blog that um, it was whilst you were working with them on some client projects that you got interested in functional programming? Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came to get into functional programming?
1: Sure. Um, so I uh, I did some functional programming in university, but I didn't really see the value of it at the time. Um, but uh, but I I saw React Cocoa as sort of a middle ground between functional programming, which doesn't really allow you to have state, and uh, and that's really cumbersome because the real world has state, and uh, imperative programming, which I I you know, I learned and everyone knows how to do imperative programming, but it's not necessarily the best way to do things. So, uh, reactive cocoa, I like to describe as like the, uh, the peanut butter and chocolate of, of programming paradigms because it lets you do functional things, but it doesn't constrain you in the way that functional programming does. Right. I didn't want to start learning this on a, on a client project because that would be, you know, pretty, pretty irresponsible to, to do. Um, so instead what we did was spend some time working on a, an open source application called upcoming that uh, it's a calendar application and um, it, it's, it's pretty simple, but we did it using React Coco and we learned a lot doing it uh, another developer and I. Uh, so, I thought I would sort of codify some of my learning experiences in a book because there weren't really a lot of, there were a few blog posts out there, but, um, but I really wanted to do a deep dive on not only how to do reactive cocoa, but, but why it's important to do it.
2: Yeah. That was something I really enjoyed about your book was, um, I was, I found the exact same thing. I was looking around to try and get my head around it and find something I could read that would be a good introduction. Um, And there were blog posts and tutorials and whatnot that assumed a bit of familiarity with the principles of functional programming, for example, which uh, I'm not that familiar with. Whereas yours sort of, I guess, guides people through, I like, the fact that you open with sort of the philosophy of it um, and then look at the functional programming sort of on its own before then looking at the reactive bits. Mm -hmm. So I found it a nice... A nice way sort of
0: leading me into it great so for some for some of us we have no idea what functional programming well, so might be i don't so even can we have some somebody can i try and
2: test how much i've learned from ash's book because um sure and as you can correct me where i where i inevitably go wrong <laughs> but my understanding of functional programming is um it doesn't have state so it's about writing programs composed of pure functions and a function is a some code that takes certain parameters and returns a certain thing. And given the same parameters, it will always return the same thing. So it doesn't take any regard to the state of the application that it's running in. You know, you could conceive of methods in Objective-C that might behave that way. But a lot of methods in Objective-C, you know, will look at properties of the object that the method's defined on and will behave somewhat differently depending on the values that those properties currently have won't just use the arguments that they're passed. Whereas my understanding of functional programming is saying you just use pure functions, Mm -hmm. uh, code that takes some parameters and always returns the same thing. And then you can kind of build programs on that basis. Mm -hmm.
1: Have I missed anything? Is there more to it than that? Yeah, there's, there's one other component that, uh, I mean, people disagree on what functional programming is, but that's generally the, the accepted uh, definition. The other thing is that it doesn't have any side effects. So um, also inside of your Objective-C method, you wouldn't want to not just access any properties, but you wouldn't want to set any properties either.
2: Right. So it's no state and no side effects, just basically uh, each function is entirely self-contained. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you mentioned that you came across this at uni. What, uh, was that in Scala? Is that a functional language? What are the sort of the typical functional programming yeah. languages or environments that people might've come across before?
1: Well, there's uh, like you mentioned, Scala and uh, another popular one these days is Clojure, which is a Lisp dialect. So if you've ever done any Lisp, but that's functional programming. Um, I did it in a, yeah. an academic language called Oz and another one called Haskell, which people might be familiar with as well.
2: And what sort of problems is functional programming really good at solving? Like is it, there are a particular sort of subset of computing problems that it's, really useful for or is it um does it solve the um i guess more abstract problems of making programs easy to write and understand
1: yeah it it lends itself to um a couple of different problem domains uh one of the biggest ones is concurrency because if you don't have any side effects or state that means you don't have any uh mutable state or um, shared state between threads so concurrency is incredibly easy to do in functional programming uh, so you'll see it a lot um, in things like uh, banks, where transactions are really important, um, or or uh, you know, like an auction system would be a really great example of where to use functional programming. But as you mentioned, it also makes mm-hmm. our lives a lot easier too. Um, if uh, if you think about imperative programming, which is how we do regular programming, I'll call it, Um, you're really telling the computer how to do its job. But the computer is pretty smart, and the compiler is pretty smart too. So instead of telling the computer how to do its job, it would be really cool if you could just describe what you want done, and then the computer would do it for you. And uh, a really really uh, simple example of that would be um, something like uh, if you have there are some different like terms and things that uh, that functional programming uses like maps and filters and and folds that it it operates on lists or arrays but uh but if you have like an array of of um people and you want to get an array of their first names that's really easy to do in functional programming uh because it's just a map but if you want uh to do that in imperative programming then you have to create a mutable array iterate over all the people and then uh, construct your mutable array turn it into an immutable array and that's really telling the the computer how to do it but you would just like to have it done so it's just easier to say this is what i want and and you describe what it is you want and the computer just does it
2: yeah I, so it's an interesting sort of way of succinctly summing it up saying that you tell the computer what you want done rather than how to do it and i think that's where i'm struggling getting my head around it Um, because I guess it means thinking about programming in a new way instead of thinking about, you know, procedurally do this and then do that and then do this. You need to start composing your programs of, I guess, related things that you want done. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, before we get into a little bit more of the sort of how how you start to do more complex things, I think touching on some of that terminology um, might be useful because I'd heard – a lot about um, those phrases map and fold and is reduce another one. Mm-hmm. And I and I heard people talking about them and I kind of felt embarrassed that I didn't really know what people meant, but your book made it quite clear. Map is like um, basically where you're saying for every element in a list, map one value to another value or like come up with a, a function that will derive a value for every item in a list. That's what map is, isn't it? It's basically... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. as you said, you've got a list of people and you want their names, you'd map, come up with a a map function that would map the people in the list to names for each of those people. And then Fold is kind of like combining everything in a list, is that right?
1: Yeah, so Fold is kind of interesting, but uh, it's essentially like going over each member of a list and then doing something to it So uh, and then coming up with a result of that. So a really good example is if you have a list of numbers but you want to find the maximum, then you can do that really easily with a fold because you just compare each number to the maximum so far. And if it's uh, if it's larger than that, then you know you found a new maximum and you return that.
2: Yeah. I just found even these sort of really what might be sort of uh, trivial or contrived examples, I found it so informative to actually go through and you know type in the code and execute it. And it was a little bit of an aha moment for me when you sort of realise what it's doing. Cool. And I feel like I, I, my understanding grew a fair bit, but then it sort of hit this wall of, um, I guess, how you then build more complex things from these basic principles. Mm-hmm. And that's where I sort of, um, you know, I, I guess I've developed, you know, some of my whole career to date mainly doing object-oriented programming and learnt to think about problems in, in the sense of, you know, object models and, using inheritance and thinking about, you know, um, having methods that, you know, an object being something with state and methods that modify that state. So to sort of throw all of that out the window or to try and merge that with a view of the world that is based on, on functional programming, that's where I'm really struggling, mm-hmm. is to try and understand. Um, yeah, and I guess that's what you are saying, that's where reactive COCO sort of sits at the intersection of COCO and functional programming. That's right. Do you want to give give us a brief sort of explanation of how that all works and
1: sure so uh reactive coco is a a concrete implementation of a functional reactive programming uh paradigm on uh, on ios and os 10 and it's based on um the Rx collections from net actually. So this is where we, we sort of get that uh, that idea from. Um, and Reactive Coco itself, as you mentioned, is at the intersection between uh, Cocoa Coco and, and functional reactive programming. And I would like to think of it as two different um two different things within Reactive Coco. Um so uh Reactive Cocoa has the um this core called a signal and a signal represents a unit of work that can be done. Um, so, uh, the easiest way to create a signal is to just wrap, a, um, a property that's uh, key value compliant and, uh, it'll emit every time that property has a new, um, a new, pro- uh, uh, a new value set to it, then it will emit a new value. So signals send values over time. And that's a really key, uh, uh concept. Um, a signal doesn't really have an idea of like a past value or a current value or anything it just represents something that can send values as the as time progresses forward so um that's really key because you can see ne-
2: even the terminology using here is really interesting to me um because so the idea of a signal emitting values is that analogous to a method a message being passed to an object or a method call or a function being executed what is that? What does a signal do when it emits an object? Sorry, emits a value.
1: Well, um, the, the thing is, it, it's sort of like, um, you know, turtles all the way down. <laughs> like uh, signals, um, are are uh, they have operators that you can do things with signals. And then um, you have this sort of flow of information from one signal to another, to another, to another and uh and the other key part of yep. reactive cocoa is uh bindings so you can bind uh a property to the result of a chain of signals for example uh, and that's um that's how you get around state is that you you tell reactive cocoa to manage your state for you Um, So uh, an example would be, um, it's actually a really simple example. If you have a a view and you want to uh, attach pan recognizer to it and then set another view center to wherever the pan gesture recognizer goes. So it's basically just going to follow your finger as it moves across the screen, um, that's, that's like a couple methods to do an objective C you've got to set it up and then you've got to respond to the gesture recognizer method and blah, blah, blah. It's like a one-liner in react Coco cocoa because you bind the center property of the view. There's a signal that uh, is built into a uh, gesture recognizer that just like sends a new value every time the gesture recognizer, uh, method would have been called. So then you map that from being, a uh, the signal value that it senses the gesture recognizer itself, and you map that from being a gesture recognizer to being a location coordinate, and then you bind that uh, resulting map to the center property. So that um, that'll it's just like one liner that'll uh, that'll achieve what you want to do, and that's again telling the computer what you want done instead of how you want to do it. And that kind of gets to the other side yeah. of Reactive Cocoa as well. So there's the signals part, which signals and bindings and what you can do with signals and operate on them and stuff like that. And then there's the UI kit extensions and the app kit extensions. So, uh, you can have like, um, categories on, on different things like, buttons and controls and, uh, and collection views and all these different things that uh, that um, the developers of Reactive Cocoa have added categories to. So it makes it really easy to integrate with Reactive Cocoa because they already emit the signals that you want them to.
2: So that may, it, it kind of makes sense to me. In some ways, is it a little bit like Cocoa bindings, which yes. kind of, I guess, are more fully fleshed on the desktop Mac OS? In yeah. In the sense that the, the you're relating... The value of one property to to the value of another property through some I guess transformation that's exactly right, but it sounds so much more flexible than cocoa bindings in the sense that 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 transformation can be you mentioned chains of signals, so you can chain things together mm-hmm. and basically have whatever happening between getting one value and setting it somewhere else
1: that's exactly right, yep
2: i'd still um I still struggle with this a bit and probably I struggle with cocoa bindings for the same reason in that um i can't see what's happening i guess when i read uh, procedural code or um, you know a tr- traditional programming where you can sort of see one method call following another method call even in the example you talk about if i see the um, gesture recognizes delegate method being called and i see some setters being called in there um, you can i can sort of trace the execution of the program with my eyes and and see exactly what's doing what whereas with um reactive cocoa it, it feels a little bit disconnected the, and it is a bit disconnected like it seems like the examples i've seen the code that sets up this sequence of signals is typically written in view did load or mm-hmm. is that where it would be done that's right and then that's kind of it right there's not actually any code anywhere else yep um and so it's just basically when you when your view loads you set up this sequence of signals that that takes a value from from one part of the program and manipulates it and sets it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, when that actually, when that value actually changes, uh, I, I find it, you know, it's not really clear which line of code is responsible for doing that transformation. Yeah, um, maybe it's just something I've got to get used to.
1: It it, it is something that uh, it takes a while to get used to, actually. Um, but it is a, a different way of of programming a computer. So it, you have to sort of unlearn a little bit of uh, the habits and things that are ingrained in you from uh, imperative programming.
2: Yeah, I think that's where I'm at. I've got to do a little bit more unlearning. <laughs> um, one of the other things I chan- I struggled with a little bit was trying to figure out how it fits with other frameworks I use. So so. Um, you know, I went through the examples. Um, you've got a great sort of worked example in the book. It's, I think it's a photo viewing app. Mm-hmm. Is it about viewing photos on 500 pixels? That's right. Yeah. And so I kind of um, I started working through that one. And then um, rather than completing the worked example, I started wanting to apply these principles directly to an app I was working on, which in some ways was similar, but in other ways it was different. And Mm -hmm. So I sort of was, I guess, uh, trying to translate in my mind, okay, if this is how you do it in the worked example, this is how it would apply to my project. And some of the time I got there, um, but then I ran into some issues like um, dealing with, it seems like our reactive cocoa works well when all of the the things that you're interacting with know about the principles of functional reactive programming. Mm. Um, But where you're using something like, I think I was using AF networking um, and I was trying to, Best, basically, sort of wrap an existing library so that uh, instead of using a delegate method or instead of using a, a completion block, it would uh, I think is the right word emit a signal mm-hmm. on completion. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a, a sort of good approach to that generally, or is is it best to stick with sort of um, libraries that all know about functional reactive programming? If that's what you're using.
1: Well, uh, that's a good question. Um- There's actually a uh, Reactive Cocoa extension for AF networking that adds uh, signals and things to all of the existing classes. So you can get that uh, for free. Fantastic. Yeah. But for a general purpose library, like if you're using something that's not AF networking and doesn't have reactive cocoa extensions, then there is a little bit of work to to get from like the non-reactive world to the reactive world. And uh, the easiest way to do that is to use, um, it's called a subject, which is similar to a signal except that you manually send values along it. Let's take the networking example. Uh, you've got a network request and you want to um, to do something with it. And then when the networking request finishes, process the data and then send that data along the signal. So what you would do is create a subject and then immediately return that subject. And then when the networking code returns, it would send values along that subject. So the subject is representing a, a unit of work that is going to be completed at some time in the future.
2: Right. Okay. I think that makes sense. And I think that that may have been where I got to. And then do you encounter the same sort of problem on the other end in that if once you've received uh, a signal in some reactive code, Mm -hmm. if you want to do something with it that that modifies something that itself can't be bound to or isn't reactive, but you want to actually basically do the equivalent of uh, calling an objectivity method,
1: Yes, Uh, the result or something. Exactly. So what you can do is take the signal and uh, instead of binding into a property, you can subscribe to its values, and then inside of that subscribe block, actually, uh, you can uh, have your side effects there. Yes, exactly. Uh, so right. uh, a really really uh, good example is if you 're using an NSFetch results controller and your uh, your core data store has changed and you want to update your uh, table view, you can have your table view reload data method inside of one of those subscribe blocks
2: yep okay oh well that i think I think that was one of the bits that i that I missed that that sort of second part of it is basically how having, having to get out of reactive cocoa land again back into the sort of procedural mm-hmm. but is um is that typical that you'd need to do both of those things or or is it feels felt a little bit like i was um resisting the kind of way reactive cocoa wanted me to work that um i felt like i was i guess not using it properly at the point at which i was um Mm-hmm. making those connections between reactive Cocoa and procedural code. Is the philosophy sort of one that you sh- your whole app should basically be f- using functional reactive programming from top to bottom and and there shouldn't be any need to have a uh, side effects and state, or is it pretty much in Cocoa understood that um, a lot of the existing API does use um, state and side effects and that you do need to have those connections?
1: Yeah. So I, uh, it, uh, in an ideal world, we would all be writing in functional reactive programming all the time. But the reality is uh, sort of a compromise where we're dealing with Cocoa, which has state and isn't really designed to to work with signals and things like that. So it's normal to have to have side effects in subscribe next blocks, and it's normal to um, you know sort of uh, marry these uh, non reactive frameworks to reactive Cocoa in a way, sort of like uh, inserting reactive Cocoa in between your application and the library. That you're using. Um that that's that's a a normal thing to have to do, which is unfortunate. Um but as libraries are growing more popular and as Reactive cocoa is growing more popular, we're seeing more libraries um have extensions for Reactive Cocoa built into them already.
2: Yeah, fantastic. You mentioned AF networking's got got support. What are Mm -hmm. the other sort of main libraries you'd recommend using with Reactive Cocoa that work well together?
1: Uh that's a really good question. Um let me just do a quick pod search here. Um, so it looks like it's just AF networking right now at the moment but um that's the only one that are in uh, CocoaPods pods anyways um there's also a reactive cocoa layout which is uh, really cool it's written by the same developers at github who write reactive cocoa and it's uh, it's a way of defining your layout in sort of an auto layout way but using signals instead to uh to respond to different events and things like that so if you uh if you add a view to your um to your view hierarchy, you know what what does that do when you want your layout to change? And I I don't completely <laughs> understand it to be mm-hmm. honest, but it's a lot of fun to to use because you can um, you can have side effects and and um, when you're binding things like the center property I mentioned earlier, um, you can also say animate this, and then whenever the signal emits a new value, it does so in an animation block, so that value's binding oh, cool. is automatically animated for you.
2: Yeah, nice. And what about um, like, are there is there a reactive approach to interacting with Core Data, or is that because you mentioned things like um, you know, fetch results controller and things like table views, and it would strike me that yeah, that there's these, a lot of these common places at which people need to sort of interact with the Cocoa APIs that weren't really written with a view of of reactive programming. Mm-hmm. Is there a good practice for using Core Data in a reactive way?
1: Um, so there's, there's two different approaches. Uh, the first one is to use a library called reactive core data, um, which, uh, will let you use the reactive cocoa style, um, Programming with the core data world, um, but uh, that's pretty heavy handed and introduces another dependency and things like that. So it's not perfect for everyone, um, but it is a pretty good library. Uh, the other approach is to use um, use your NSFetch results controller as you normally would, but then um, you know when you're responding to uh, things like that, those are essentially signals um, when you're responding to like a, a delegate method on NSFetch results controller delegate. Uh, so, you can respond to those mm-hmm. signals with side effects and things like that. So, the, the really, it's sort of a tangent, <laughs> um, but what you can do is. Um, you can set up a signal that just emits a new value every time the uh a method is called on an object. So instead of actually defining those um those methods in your object, like you're you typically would have an NSFetchResultsController results controller delegate on your view controller. And then inside of those methods you yep. would respond to um like when the table view starts to, you know, change content, when it finishes changing content, all that stuff. You can do that using React Cocoa instead. So you can actually say um, self rack signal for selector, and then pass in like controller will change content, and then that emits a that's a signal that emits a new value every time that uh, selector was invoked. And the value that it sends is a tuple of all of your uh, parameters. So you can unpack them and then do stuff with them. So you can still define all of your um, your behavior in view to Load and, and tell the – you're basically setting up a system where you tell the system uh, what you want it to do and then just let it run. And then it it just does stuff for you.
2: Yeah, it sounds really – it sounds fascinating. And the more I hear about it, the more I kind of want to understand it better. And I think I have to just build something with it to sort of get over that hump of, yeah, going through. I can get through a number of exercises and, and seem to be getting it, but then I feel like there's there's still when it turns to applying it to to a real-world problem where I'm interacting with, say, a network service or a core data store or something else um, that I just, yeah, can't quite see how to make that connection. Mm-hmm. But um, talking to you makes me convinced that I need to just give it a go and build something.
0: Preferably not a client project. Yeah. <laughs> Why not, you know? <laughs>
2: jump in the deep end uh maybe maybe i should build something yes something little first but real real but not a client project yeah that's probably good advice
1: yeah i've got another example of um of an application that i built um for for uh, ios using React coco um that um that that is a real world example. Like I have the app on the App Store and it uses Reactive Cocoa, and you can take a look at it because it's open source on GitHub. Um, it's called C forty one, um, and it's uh it's fully unit tested. Um, I can send you a link to it after, and um, yeah, it's it's um it uses a, a slightly different like it uses Reactive Cocoa, but it also uses an alternative to uh, Model View Controller called Model View View Model, which I actually touch in the book as well. Um, and it's just a different way of structuring your code so that it makes it a lot easier to test. That's all.
2: Yeah, that sounds great. I'll have to check that out. And I think I've I've heard of model view view model before. Is that basically where um, you've got yes two models? You've got your kind of uh, domain model mm-hmm. that, that represents sort of uh, the the objects, you know, your business objects. How in the most um, I guess true to themselves way Uh, and then you've got a separate view model which is basically um a a way a model that is what the view would like things presented to it in Mm -hmm. and then the intermediate layer basically marshals between the two is that how it works
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, So you've got the view and the view controller, which are are very tightly coupled in this model, and they don't really do a whole lot. All of the presentation logic is put in the view model. So if you have a a date that you want transformed into a string using a date formatter, you'll put that in your view model. And the the really handy thing is that you can now test your view model independently of your view, which is a a really key component to it. Yeah,
2: because it is pretty tricky to um, unit test things that, you know, involve views and view controllers, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas this lets you have basically a a view model, so all of the sort of presentation logic around extracting sort of certain properties from your underlying model objects and doing transformations of them you're doing in the view model. That's right. And then test. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Um, So uh, this sort of might be a little bit of an aside, um, but it sounds to me like you are bringing to Cocoa a few ideas that you that may have come from elsewhere. have you what's your background and, and have you basically started doing objective c cocoa development recently um or is it something you've done for a while where are these ideas coming from
1: well uh that's a good question um i started doing ios development in university so i I've, I've been at this for um uh, almost oh god 5 years now <laughs> um so it's a uh, it's been a while for me and um, I, I focus uh, primarily on iOS development and some OS 10 as well but um, mm-hmm. it, it I feel I like I felt a little constrained in the past couple of years because I don't have access to those other communities and I'm a huge fan of the idea of of learning how a other developers approach the same problems that I'm approaching and then seeing if maybe their approach has some ideas that I can steal from them and then you know maybe I can yeah, contribute I, back and they can steal some of my ideas too
2: i think that's really refreshing i i like that as well i um i think when i first encountered that idea uh i, I guess of cross-pollination i like to call it mm-hmm. um was when i was doing web objects development and uh some of the contributors to the open source web objects frameworks i was using Had been doing a bit of Ruby on Rails as well, and there was this. It was a really interesting dynamic because I don't know how much you know about WebObjects. It's the granddaddy of Model View Controller. There are five
0: people that use it in the world. (laughs) There are
2: not. There's lots, but um, you know, it was when when Ruby on Rails uh, gained sort of uh, widespread success uh, within the WebObjects community. There was a little bit of a, I guess, this sense of who are these Johnny Come Latelys coming to this idea of model view controller as if it's like they invented it.
0: Have it don't you know that
2: we've been doing it for years? And
0: So web ob- the five web objects people that are out there are all old, old men? Is that what you're trying to say? I'm not, that's not what I'm saying at all. There's a diversity
1: <laughs> of ages
2: and genders and there, there was certainly within the community some sort of curmudgeonly uh, reaction. Um, and speaking from my own personal reaction, I had a little bit of it myself. I'm sort of so, saying, you know, yes, this this new upstarts don't know, you know, what what of what, what is there of interest there? We've been doing that stuff for years. Um, but then the people that did start paying attention to Ruby um, sort of came back to WebObjects and brought all sorts of really interesting ideas that had come from Ruby on Rails, um, just interesting ways of approaching problems. Um, and it, I think it then really improved the, the open source frameworks that I had been using as those ideas sort of got imported into the WebObjects world. And I see that now happening, I think, with Coco. I think Reactive Coco is one of them. You said that that's come from... Um the c sharp reactive extensions hmm that's right um is it was it the git the github developers that wrote functional reactive programming is that
1: right uh yeah they wrote reactive cocoa yeah
2: reactive cocoa yeah sorry yeah um and and i guess yeah and and as you say the model view view model um sort of design pattern that has its genesis in other frameworks as well doesn't it It's more widely used where where had you have you encountered that
1: that's really popular in um in dot net as well actually so if you were writing a windows phone application then your uh, your mvvm is is uh, your go to it's like our mvc basically
2: yeah okay it's it's really interesting i've done a little bit lately myself been using xamarin on a couple of client projects mm-hmm. um so i've been learning a bit of c sharp um and picking up some ideas there as well um and it's fascinating i find it really fascinating sort of seeing how different uh I guess, technology communities approach similar problems in different Mm -hmm. ways. And I kind of wonder what we're going to see in in Coco in the future, Uh, how much of these ideas will end up becoming part of the sort of the mix of how people build things in Um, Coco, whether some of these ideas. Can you imagine maybe Apple doing some uh, reactive style uh, frameworks themselves or do you think it will always be a third-party extension?
1: yeah i i don't hold that much hope unfortunately um apple's sort of you know they're uh they've dug their heels in and they're gonna do this objective c thing they're gonna do this uh this uh m v c thing all the way down so um so i don't really hold out much hope but uh the third party application uh or sorry uh third party library support uh, it's pretty great um i mean even a few years ago we didn't have something like CocoaPods and a dependency manager or something mm. that we borrowed from another community so it's not just the um not just the frameworks but it's also the tools on how we how we develop our applications that uh, that's changing
2: yeah exactly and it's re- it is interesting because i think that um we've kind of reached this point where the th- the developer community outside of apple is having perhaps a bigger influence on how people build apps than apple is themselves Wow, <laughs> I hadn't even that, thought of you know, that. Yeah, things like co- things like CocoaPods, things like reactive Cocoa, things like yeah, I think CocoaPods is probably making a bigger difference to how people build apps than changes in Xcode four or. Mm-hmm. It, it's an interesting dynamic. You know, how much of this will Apple embrace? Um, how much will they continue to sort of pretend that the the external community <laughs> aren't innovating in these ways, or or will they? You know, will we see uh, Xcode five that includes support for CocoaPods built into the IDE?
0: Was it this week the news that they were um, they're using Mo Generator? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that came out and it was the last this last couple of weeks yeah. all these issues with Mo Generator. I, I, I think I think the outside tends to influence the inside in ways that we don't necessarily see. I, I think that's that's kind of an uh, the Mo Generator thing is kind mm. of an example of that because I mean all the people are developing on. You know, for, for Apple are also yeah. you know they're involved in the community in possibly slightly quieter ways, and yeah. you know they they're they're obviously you know hearing this the the noise that we are all creating, but you know just there's nothing coming from Apple as a as a you know as a unit. Mm-hmm. I suppose.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at uh, Xcode Five's unit testing integration, you know, they deprecated OC unit and they moved to XC test. Uh, and that was really great. And, uh, and you don't even have an option to not create unit tests with a new project anymore. So they definitely want us to move towards mm-hmm. unit tests, but they didn't uh have like a, a matcher library or anything like that so people are still having to use Kiwi and expecta there's still no first party mocking support so you're still using oc mock yep. or some other library and it's just it, it you can see that they want us to move in that direction but for some reason they haven't um they haven't really committed to it and i don't know why
2: it's interesting i i have to also ask you about um your thoughts about objective c language so <laughs> it may have been you. I don't know. I think it was a blog post you wrote that got reignited recent debates about the language. You know, yeah. there was, um, John Syracuse was on a recent episode of uh, the Debug podcast uh, talking about uh, an old article he wrote called Copeland 2010. Um, and I think it was a blog post of yours, what, maybe three months ago or something um that may have reignited this discussion about the shortcomings of objective c and how um you know it might be nice to look towards a future with a different language mhm um yeah what what do you think are the the shortcomings of the language where would you like to see this all go in the future
1: well so I mean, you can't really talk about the shortcomings in a vacuum because there's a historical context of Objective C, and we we got here, of um, course, yeah. yeah, through through a lot of hard work and things like that. So I I don't I don't want to discredit the people who have worked hard to make the Objective C community uh, the viable place it is to, today. And
2: I think part of that context as well is that to me the Objective C language is completely intermingled with the Cocoa APIs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that the two sort of go together hand in hand, uh, and there's a lot there. You know, I still find it incredible that this these sets of frameworks are what, I guess they're over ten years old now, right? So I started doing Coco on the public beta of Mac OS ten, which is what, two thousand, I think? It's fourteen years ago. Wow, that's old. <laughs> and and there are people that predate that, right? So next, this has all come from Next. So what it was maybe fifteen? Web objects was nineteen ninety five. Yeah, something like that. Took going back a fair way. And I find it incredible that these frameworks that are still so powerful, uh, have existed since then. Mm -hmm. Like when you compare it to everything else that was around at the time, um, next was way, way ahead of everything else. Yep. But it now kind of feels like, um, perhaps the rest of the world has caught up and this is what it felt like as a web objects developer, maybe, uh, five or six years ago when Ruby was gaining popularity, It, it felt this weird mix of, um, Frustration that I was using a technology that, for decades, had been ahead of, ahead of everything else, um, and then the world caught up, and I felt like the technology I was using wasn't keeping pace with the new the new technology that was that mm-hmm. was coming onto the scene. Yeah, you know, I guess I worry that Cocoa and Objective-C might could potentially, you know, suffer from the same same sorts of problems. Although, to be fair, um, Apple sort of just stopped WebObjects development at mm. some point uh not like coco and objective c they've continued you know it's 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 developed more in the last few years than it had I guess in the previous 10 mm mm-hmm. um whereas WebObjects was the opposite of that you know all development had come to an end
1: yeah uh so if, if we were, uh, going to design a language for, uh, developers to write iOS applications today, um, we probably wouldn't come up with anything resembling Objective-C because, um, it just, like, it's not fundamentally, a, a modern language. It's based in C. It uses pointers. You're, you're one pointer dereference away from an application crash. Like, it doesn't handle crashes very well. It, it's very brittle as a language, um, in, in some respects. Uh, so it would be, it would be nice to move away from it. But my fear is that, um, the incremental improvements like the kinds that we've seen over the past, especially the past, you know, four or five years from Apple, where they've introduced things like blocks and, uh, um, object literals and things like that. Um, I, I'm afraid Mm -hmm. that we're going to get to a, a chasm that's just not, um, you know passable by incremental improvements that we're going to have to make a sort of generational leap to an a next generation language uh something that has like list comprehension or or um something like that would be ideal but um you know i, I don't hold that much hope for Sorry what do
2: you what do you mean by um List comprehension. Oh,
1: sorry. Um, so, list comprehension is uh, an, another functional um, idea. It's the idea that I can just say um, one dot, dot dot two, or sorry, one dot, dot dot ten, and it will just create a list of of the numbers from one to ten for me, and it'll just generate that. Uh, and there's some other things that it can oh, do nice. as well. Um, Python has it, I believe, and, and Ruby, and a lot of other modern yep. languages. Um, but it's, it's sort of a functional idea. So, uh, I don't expect it to, to really be incorporated into language. Anyway, <laughs> um, the, yeah. the, the idea is like, um, that Objective-C is, it's a language that I, I really love because I'm so familiar with it. But it's also a language that has a lot of sharp corners. It's not approachable to newcomers. And I think eventually we're going to get to the point where, um, You know, maybe not this year or five years, but maybe 10 years from now, um, it's going to become a competitive disadvantage for Apple to still be using Objective-C as their primary development language because developers aren't going to want to program in it. Uh, and that's going to be really bad because right. as you mentioned, like we have all these Cocoa frameworks and whatever we move to as a new language isn't going to have all those Cocoa frameworks. So what are we going to do? And it's a, mm. it's a big problem. Microsoft's had it before and they've uh, spent the past, you know, 15, 20 years trying to move everyone over to .NET from the win 32 APIs. And it's taken them that long. So it would be nice to know if Apple even had a plan to, to approach this, but uh, of course they're very secretive. So,
2: Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, the the Microsoft example is is a good one. How do you think they've gone in in getting people to make the move? Um, you know, what are the, what language would the bulk of Windows apps be developed in these days? Is it C sharp? I believe uh, so. Yeah. Or are there still people using C plus plus and
1: yeah, I, they still support, um, like you can write a Windows phone application in C++, C sharp, visual basic or JavaScript. And they all use the same, mm-hmm. uh, dot net, uh, common language runtime and those same APIs, which is super cool. Um, and Microsoft's been really permissive with that. So, um, I feel like Apple would be a lot more, uh, more with the stick, less with the carrot, um, and trying to get developers, uh, to move over to whatever new language they come up with. Um, but the really. Yeah, so that's yeah.
2: certainly how they approached it with the uh, carbon Cocoa transition. Yes. Um, I think I was actually at WWDC the year uh, Steve Jobs came on stage with a coffin for uh, <laughs> OS 9. Yeah. <laughs> and it was sort of saying, you know, carbon is dead. Long live Cocoa. Mm-hmm. Time to make the move. Yeah. I found it really interesting. It seemed really, um, I guess, you know, antagonistic a little bit that there was a room full of developers who were clinging to the past, sort of saying, you know, you'll wrench carbon from my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> and there comes one g stop saying, yes, I will.
0: Yes, that seems very out of character <laughs> for Steve Jobs being antagonistic. <laughs>
2: but um, you can see how it comes about that, um, I guess, for some developers, it's really exciting and interesting to learn a modern new language, you learn something, you know, a new approach to doing things. But for a lot of people and a lot of businesses, you've got a code existing code base, you've got existing expertise, you've built up, you know, familiarity and Built whole businesses on how things are done, and the idea that you might someone might come along and say, "Okay, time to start doing things a little bit differently,"
0: mm-hmm. is a bit scary and a bit, or a lot differently, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Like if if everybody was to move over to a functional functional language completely overnight, that would be detrimental to many businesses. That would freak me out. I don't. I don't know how it'd be productive. <laughs> I guess it would be eventually, <laughs> but
2: yeah it it's it really is um is is kind of interesting it um when I say I started doing cocoa whenever in two thousand I was actually doing java cocoa. It was a thing once What? <laughs> what? There was there was a java cocoa bridge so you could write against the cocoa apis in java and when you' are fired up uh project builder as it was in the day and you went file new new project, you could choose between an objective c cocoa project or a java cocoa project. So you call it
0: Project Builder, but you call them Projects. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry.
2: <laughs> Project Builder? Project Builder?
0: Yeah. Um.
2: So, you know, and there was, uh, I think Apple's also dallied with Python bindings for Cocoa, and, um, you know, bits and pieces. So it, it's not completely unheard of that there have been times in Apple's history where you've been able to use those APIs from different programming languages. Mm-hmm. Um, But it does sort of, doesn't really feel like there's going to be any big changes anytime soon. No. I think you're right, um, Ash, in saying the incremental improvement seems to be where the focus is. And it's interesting, like uh, even new APIs, I was doing some stuff with MapKit uh, yesterday um, and using some new APIs that came in with iOS 7. um, And I was having to go drop down to C, like um, Mm. there was, uh, you know, I had to... Pass a C array, sorry, a pointer to a C array of coordinates that I wanted to be drawn on my map, mm. um, and I really struggled with it. Like I, I am so out of practice with C that I was struggling with remembering how to do that, and it, it did seem really odd that you know in a kind of modern a new iOS seven addition to the API that I'd be being asked to do stuff in C using sort of a proper object. and um, Yeah, exactly. I don't even really know why that is. I'm assuming it's performance, but maybe if you're drawing a gazillion points on a map, why have a whole heap of objects to represent them when you can just have a a lower-level structure that,
1: yeah. I don't know. My my feeling is that it, it comes down to the Apple engineers who are writing these APIs and, and what their preferences are, to be honest.
2: Yeah. It may, it could very well be. I mean, I think is it a address book that's still a C? There's no Objective C API to the address book framework.
1: Mm, that sounds right. Yeah, it's a C.
2: Yeah, which is it. So it does feel like a you know that the the fact that the current APIs are a mixture of Objective C and in some cases still C makes it feel like yeah, any future um, where you we're using an even higher level language um, might be a ways away. Um, it, if you could. Uh, have a wish granted and say at wwdc this year apple came out and announced a new uh programming language that you could start experimenting with uh what features would you want in such a language do you have one in mind that you'd want it to be very close to or
1: (laughs) well i mean the thing is like the all the apis are still there so i wouldn't in a realistic term i wouldn't be able to get my my absolute wish um but uh there are um there are some things that I want, like it shouldn't use pointers or structs or, or header files, like any of this um, C-based uh, um, legacy that we're still living with today should just be gone. Um, yeah. Something. So, so say both
2: Java and C-sharp sort of um, yeah. would meet that requ- criteria, wouldn't they?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it's something like namespaces. That's something that we still don't have in yeah. Objective-C, but uh, every other language has some sort of like package uh, you know, your encapsulation thing. Um
2: yeah, I'll add, I'll add to that. Um, Jelly mentioned earlier this controversy around Mo Generator. So, did you follow that? For anyone that's listening that isn't aware what we're talking about, uh, Mo Generator is a cool tool. Also comes from the Web Objects world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wolf Wrench, who wrote Mo Generator, was a, 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 is one of those five. There's more than five. I think it's probably one of those five. Hi, Wolf. Um, and Mo Generator was a tool that I think he wrote uh, for Web Objects, Enterprise Objects Framework models um, to automatically use the generation gap pattern so that when you are so with eof and core data basically you have a, a data model file that represents all your entities and you generate source code from that um, and the default tool chain would just generate a class for each of your entities and then if you had to write some custom code in that class you just edit it and then each time you changed your model and you regenerated your source you have to deal with merging generated source code with your customized versions. Uh, And so one of the things that Mo Generator does is it uses the generation gap pattern to automatically generate two classes, one which is the auto-generated one and one which is a subclass of that where you can then customize. Um, And it also adds a whole heap of, in in those automatically generated classes, it adds some really nice convenience methods. So um, for core data, uh, it's kind of useless having a core data and managed... NS managed object that isn't registered in a editing context. Sorry, a managed object context. You can see me mixing my uh, web objects world here. <laughs> uh, so, Mo Generator gives you a static initializer for your managed objects that registers them with a managed objects context and returns them in the one call. Uh, things like that. Anyway, uh, so the controversy is that um, it turns out that Apple, someone at Apple, is using Mo generator to automatically generate some classes from their core data models. Um, and so their the classes that they've generated are generated with the standard Mo generator method names. And this is only a problem because when you submit apps to the App Store, apparently Apple run a tool over all of your code to make sure you're not calling any private methods. And the way that they define private methods is they've got a list of method names or selectors that are sort of blacklisted. And um, those that list of blacklisted selectors is just built by scanning Apple's frameworks. So any method that is in a private framework is added to this list of methods you're not allowed to call. And so what's happened is that, that people were worried that if you use Mo generator in your app, your app might be rejected because it happens to have a method of the same name as one of those in a blacklist uh, because Apple's private frameworks were using mode generator method names. Anyway, it strikes me as absolutely crazy that so Java for example has a concept of private, protected and public methods and mm-hmm. it strikes me as kind of crazy that Apple's mechanism for making sure you don't call private methods is basically you know string pattern matching just to sort of uh I would have thought that the programming language itself could actually support that idea of partitioning making it so that my code in my app can't actually call private methods in a framework that I've linked against.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so that's kind of a wish list of a modern a sort of example of, and maybe I'm misunderstanding that maybe Java and C Sharp actually do let you via reflection still call private methods inside of third-party libraries, but I don't think they do. I think it's pretty much
1: you, know, yeah. you,
2: you wouldn't need to resort to that sort of tool of scanning the the Names of methods to make sure that no one's calling them, that you could rely on the the features of the language to say that there are different, um, I can't think of the the generic term for it, but the difference between private and protected and public that you can actually sort of say this part of my code is only allowed to be called by other classes in the same package. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was a little bit of a rant <laughs> An aside. I was just, I was just adding my, my wishes um, to your language wish list.
0: Oh, that, that, that was the point. I was going to say, what was the point of all?
2: <laughs> La- language features. So in addition to namespaces, I want um, the ability to say public, private and protected, ability to be able to say within, to, is it scoping the access of code, basically sort of saying. So Objective-C kind of has it right in that you can hide uh, you know, anything you put in the .h file, you're basically saying this is my the public interface to my class. Uh, and then you can write uh, to find your method signatures in your .m file and saying that these are private. Um, but that's really just a convention, right? There's mm-hmm. nothing actually to stop you sending a message to, sending any message to any class. That's right. Uh, so so if you determine that a class knows how to respond to a message, even if it's not defined in that class as public header file, you can just send that message to the class and it will
0: do its thing you generally get a warning
2: or something in the static analyzer right but it will run it's not it's not a runtime problem no i Um, believe it runs whereas i believe that it's a feature of a language like java where if you define a method as private to a class that nothing outside that class can call it um right and i would have thought that that would be a kind of feature of a modern language does c sharp have a similar yes even php has that Wow! <laughs> yeah, because <Yeah. laughs> I did not think there would be any features that are in PHP that would make it to my
1: list of things
0: I want in Apple's next language. I, I, I want Apple's next language to be PHP. <laughs> <laughs> and sorry, Ash, we interrupted you.
2: You were saying uh, namespaces.
1: Oh right. Um, so I mean, there are a lot of things that I'd like. Um, it should be memory managed, like not having to deal with ARC. Like maybe a garbage collector would be nice. Um, you know, there there are some problems with that. But uh anyways, it like there there's a list of things I'm mostly grabbing from John Syracusa. So like, um it should be concise, it should have native Unicode strings, native collections, so we're not using objects. We're, we're using like arrays that are built into the language, strings that are built into the language. Um ideally I'd like to be programming in Haskell, which would be super awesome. And there's even a uh, Haskell to Cocoa Bridge, but uh but it, I don't believe works on iOS, so it's just OS ten and um yeah, it hasn't really been touched in a few years, but it would be awesome if they came go with Haskell.
2: There you go. I, I can tell by the tone in your voice, though, that you don't hold up much hope for this
1: happening. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah, it's
2: interesting. Um, you know, presumably at some point, uh, Apple will adopt a different language. You know, they, you can't. Technology evolves. Mm-hmm. And, um, they won't be using the same language forever. Mm-hmm. But you wonder whether it'll take... You know a next style event, you know. So the the reason we're using Objective C and Coco is because, um, you know, Apple's technology was suffering so badly that the only way that they could fix it was to buy a company external to Apple mm-hmm. and kind of do a was it a reverse acquisition where then all of the next technology took over basically Apple. <laughs> um, is it will it require such a dramatic change in the future to sort of.
1: Yeah, I I, I fear we'll so. We end up
2: using uh, C-sharp and .NET because Apple gets eaten by Microsoft. <laughs> Microsoft, Maybe. who knows? Oh, well, thank, thank you so much for your time talking to us today. No problem. Um, I th- I feel like I've learned a lot more about Reactive Cocoa, uh, but I still feel like I really need to get my hands dirty. So I'm going to check out um, the app you mentioned, C41. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to have a go at trying to find some smallish project that, that it doesn't matter if I mess up that I can... Have a go (laughs) at using reactive cocoa. Cool. Um, Would you recommend using bits of it? Like um, one of the things that I've seen people do uh, is basically use reactive cocoa to replace sort of key value observing. Mm -hmm. Is it worth doing just on a small scale like that? Or is it really something that you want to embrace more fully and do? Larger chunks of your app in Reactive Cocoa.
1: No, it's it's certainly something that's worth doing. Um, if that's if that's your goal, is just to do key value uh, observation, then there are other libraries that'll let you do that with blocks and things like that. But the nice thing about using KVO f- with Reactive Cocoa is that it's sort of a, a gateway drug, so you can um, get yeah. into more and more Reactive Cocoa as as you feel comfortable doing so.
2: Yeah. So I could just right now go and replace the the kind of one spot I use key value observing a fair bit is uh, custom cells. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why, but this seems to be a pattern I've gotten into where whenever I'm using a collection view or a table view, I have a cell subclass that has a public property, which takes the model object that it's going to display. And I use KVO so that when it's given a new one, it then updates its view. Mm -hmm. Um, I could just stop using KVO for that and use reactive cocoa for that instead. That's right. And that would be a good starting point. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to do that at the very least. Cool. That'll it will be it will be my gateway drug. I'll start with that, <laughs> and then I'll see if I can find other places to start using it as well. Good work, Jake. Good work. Excellent. And um, I don't know how much time we've got left. We didn't. End I think we we probably need to start wrapping it up. Okay, I was going to ask you about Amsterdam quickly. Why why Amsterdam?
1: Oh, um, isn't Canada nice enough? Yeah. Uh, well, my wife and I have always wanted to explore Europe, Amsterdam central. And uh, we figured instead of just like getting over once every year or so to uh, to have like a one week vacation somewhere, we should just move over to Europe and uh, explore around while we're here. So we, we came over. Uh, there's a special visa for Canadians and Australians, actually. Um, so we can oh, stay fantastic. for a year. And uh, that's what we're going to do. And uh, I just started a new job at Artsy. So they're based in New York so we're going to move there next
2: oh nice oh. there you go um i, I think I did, I did something similar i spent a year in the uk um oh, cool. and it was fantastic so coming from australia the idea that you can actually just travel for an hour or so and be in a different country where they speak a different language and have an entirely different culture it's <laughs> just awesome like i i couldn't wrap my head around that that you could just get on a train and a couple of hours later be in a different country mm-hmm. um so i I spent yeah a year in London and visited um Italy and France and Spain and uh Scotland and oh, a few others Germany <laughs> cool I think that's as far as I got uh but yeah it was nice it was really a lot of fun um but didn't get to Amsterdam. I hear there's a thriving iOS community there.
1: There is, yeah. Um, There are weekly uh, meetings things. I'm about to head off to one called Peer Lab where uh, you just come uh to a coffee shop, or not a coffee shop, sorry, a cafe. It's a very important distinction in Amsterdam. Um, you come to a oh, cafe okay. and bring your computer and you just get help with your problems from other people and help them with their problems. So it's just uh, developers helping other developers
2: yeah we've got a f- something like that uh it's probably not in camp we do canberra cocoa heads here uh our cocoa heads are pretty low-key it's a bit like that uh i think melbourne's got a thing called ns Coda night and where they do a similar thing you just go to a pub on one evening a month bring your computer and anyone else who's working on stuff and help
1: each other out it's kind
2: of nice very cool uh, yeah cool well we won't
0: keep you from that any longer um, thanks for joining us. Thanks again for the book. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And Ash, if um if people want to get in touch with you, where can they where can they do that? Oh, How can they do that?
1: Um the easiest place to get in touch with me is probably on Twitter where I'm Ash Furrow there and um if you have any questions at all, um the best the best way to, to um approach me with reactive cocoa questions is just to create a Stack Overflow question and ping me on Twitter with a link to it sure. and I'll take a look at it.
0: Cool. And your book uh, about reactive cocoa is called Functional reactive programming?
1: Yep, on iOS. For iOS, is that right? That's right.
0: And we'll uh, we'll throw a link to purchase that in the show notes. Yeah, we
2: will. I'm feeling guilty I didn't pay you more for it now. (laughs) I think it was pay what you think it's worth. Is
1: that how you're doing it? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah,
2: I I just went with what the default was because I didn't know until I'd read it. That's why it's Now that I've read it, I'm thinking...
0: You're such a horrible yeah. person,
2: Jeff. <laughs> For going with the default. Yeah. I'm sure there are people that kind of
0: ramp it down to 99 cents yeah. a dollar. But, yes, I've, I have enjoyed it. So, thanks a lot. Well, if any of you would like to read any of the details uh, that we have you know that have been mentioned throughout the episode, then you can do that. Um, all the links that we put pull together will be in our show notes on our website. And that's going to be at mobilecouch.co forward slash uh, 30 because this is episode number 30. Now, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can do that as well. You can send us an email, and you can do that on our website as well. That's mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Mm-hmm. And finally, if you'd like to get in touch with us individually, you can do that as well. Jake is on Twitter as Jay McMullen. that's J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-N, and I am on Twitter as jelly bean soup. So, thank you for listening. We look forward to talking to you again in another couple of weeks. Uh, we will... Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.